have, you're welcome to all sit down. Um, I have the distinct pleasure, and I, it's going to be really hard to get through this without crying, so you're going to have to bear with me, um, of introducing our guest speaker today, Sundar Krishnan. Last week, Steve gave you much of his resume, but today I'll be speaking a little more from the heart. Um, one of my earliest memories of Sundar is from my elementary years. I was probably six or seven and was so intrigued by this man who was dunking people in the bathtub at the front of the church. <laughs> As a teenager, I remember being overwhelmed by the speed at which Cinder would speak with his thick Indian accent, covering vast stretches of scripture and summing it, summing it up in a 10-point sermon. And I'll give you my best teenager eye roll here. Boring. <laughs> But it wasn't until my early 20s that I truly got to know this man when one day, broken, hurt, and confused, I felt compelled to ask him for guidance and help. When all others had seemingly rejected me, Sunder took me in, loved me like his own daughter, listened to my heart, ushered me to the foot of the cross, and helped me find healing. Have you heard the quote, dripping water hollows out stone, not through force, but through persistence? To a certain extent, I feel that this quote sums up Sunder's influence on my life. But instead of being hollowed out, I was formed and filled, you know? <laughs> I had the privilege of sitting under Sunder's teaching for almost 40 years of my life. Yes, I know I look a lot younger than that, but no. <laughs> when I look back, it feels like I experienced a full buffet feast every single Sunday. So I'm delighted that you'll get a taste of that buffet today. Do you have at least one person in your life that knows every detail of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and still fully loves you? We all should. <laughs> How about someone who you would model your marriage after and even your life after? This is Sunder, and by extension, Shemala, his wife, to both Steve and I. Sunder, I love you, and we're delighted to have you here with us today. And it really is a pleasure for me to be here with you. I have been with you virtually on two other occasions and uh, met with a couple of the elders on a couple of occasions as well. So I just really feel in some way connected even though I've never physically been here. So thank you for this incredible privilege. <clears throat> I want you to come with me about, I think approximately 20 years ago, it was a Thursday morning, I was in my study. I had uh, finished my time of communion with God and I was getting ready to write my sermon. Thursdays were the days I protected for the writing of my sermon as well. And I also got a call from the executive pastor saying, hey, can you get the study guides finished uh, today, one day earlier? For whatever reason, I can't remember the details. At that moment, the telephone rang. It was my wife, Sham. We lived next door in the parsonage. And on, the, on Thursdays, she would look up, we have six grandchildren, and on, six, and on the Thursday she would look after whichever grandchildren were not yet school-going age so that their respective mothers could actually have a full day off where they could take some time alone with God, you know, which is, which is a hard commodity to come by when you have young children. 
Anyway, so Matthew, our two-year-old grandson, he's 23 now, was, that's how I know how long ago this happened. And so Sham was looking after him, and she said, hey, I forgot to get the uh, uh, car seat from his mother, so I've got to go over. So can you come on over and just watch, watch him for about 10 minutes or so? Well, I'm a very structured individual, and I carefully plan and protect, especially the mornings, especially Thursdays, and so, and Sham knows all about this, and so I was kind of irritated that she would ask me to do this. And of course, I also know that come on over for 10 minutes usually means 30 to 40 minutes and not 10 minutes. So all this kind of added to my irritation. I'm sure that must have got through in my response. I don't know what I said, but evidently it communicated my irritation with her. Her response didn't help at all because she said, well, you do what you have to do, you know. So that added to my irritation because why wouldn't she not understand that this was a perfectly legitimate request on my part? She knew Thursdays were protected for that particular purpose. She had lots of time to plan for this. She could have asked me the previous night for this information, but why now at this time? But in addition to that, I was further irritated because my initial response obviously revealed the selfishness of my own heart as well, coming out of it. Anyway, I went over, irritated but not angry, but certainly quite irritated. But everything turned out fine. By the way, the 10 minutes was 40 minutes, as I expected. But I had a wonderful time with my grandson. Uh, the sermon got finished on time. The study guides got finished on time. And everything was okay. But it does illustrate something that happens to all of us in everyday living. Where we have experiences where our individual rights and expectations are violated in some way or another. Perhaps you received a comment that felt like it put you down. Maybe something that was said or not said that embarrassed you in public. Maybe a critical comment that kind of left you feeling a bit diminished. That's a violation of your dignity rights, your dignity as a person. Or maybe you bought something and you took it back to the store to try and return it. And instead of sympathetically listening to you and simply returning uh, your money or whatever they have promised to do, the uncooperative sales clerk makes you read the fine prints and argues with you and sends you here, there, and everywhere. You're, that's the violation of your legal rights. It's something that you were owed. Maybe it was someone who infringes on your property in some way. I remember in my very first home that we owned in Canada was a, a divided highway, a driveway, and our neighbor used to regularly haul this huge big trailer behind his car that would quite significantly lean into our driveway. That was a violation of my property rights. And sometimes, as in the case with my grandson, Things can happen that seem like a violation of your personal space or your personal rights in it. These are, all of these are just examples of a violation of our personal charter of rights. We all have them. Dignity rights, legal rights, property rights, personal rights. And by the way, uh, probably the one relationship more than anything else, for those of us who are married, know that marriage usually provides most of these opportunities for these kinds of violation of perceived or real rights. Uh, although probably not too often legal and property, but the dignity and personal rights tend to get violated much more than we would expect. <laughs> 
but they're actually true in all kinds of relationships. Now, our most common reaction when rights are violated in some way is ranging all the way from mild irritation all the way to explosive anger. So the question that thrusts itself before us is, how do we handle this potentially explosive emotion called anger, which may also just express itself in much milder forms, but which is an unavoidable aspect of, of life and something that we can expect to happen and probably have already happened to us here. Now, before I get into that, I want to just say something. In, in, in a short time that I have in one sermon to even begin to address something like anger, there, are, there might be some people here whose expectations I will not meet and you might end up getting angry with me. And that's possible because maybe you've been hurt much more than most people. Maybe as a child. Physical abuse, verbal abuse, abuse uh, bullying in schools, all kinds of things. Maybe as an adult you've been hurt in significant relationships by people in authority over you. Maybe even in marriage. And these kinds of hurts end up causing uh, a lot of anger. And that anger is in many cases very, very appropriate as you will find out. And if that is so, you need a lot more than what you're going to hear from me today. You might need even professional counseling. But don't tune me out if you happen to be in that category. Because even if that is your case and you need that help, once you've got it, you still have to deal with this as an emotionally healthy adult. Life is full of these situations where there's constant violation of these rights, these dignity, personal, property, and legal rights. So it becomes important for us to know exactly how we're going to respond to them and how we address those things. Now, all of us know that just flying off the handle and tearing a strip off somebody else is not really appropriate, although sometimes we might do that. On the other end of the spectrum, though, some of us have been told that as Christians, we shouldn't be angry. Christians shouldn't be angry. And so we tend to stuff down this emotion called anger and then it either comes out explosively sometime or it begins to hurt you on the inside and you're not even aware of it. So we've got to find a balance between these two. You see, the basic commandment when it comes in Scripture, when it comes to anger, is not don't be angry, it not suppress anger, but rather be angry and do not sin. In fact, Psalm 4 says it. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 repeats the same thing. Be angry and do not sin. The command is actually to be angry, but to be angry in such a way that we do not sin in that expression of anger. And that's what brings us to the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be studying today. How do you do this? What does it mean to be angry and not sin? What does that look like when you start putting some flesh on those ideas? The word is translated gentleness. It's also translated meekness. Same word in the Greek language. Jesus introduced us for the first time to it. Uh, at least in his ministry, it is a quotation from Psalm 37, where in the Beatitudes he says, Blessed are the meek, for they are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now his original hearers must have been totally shocked to hear that. Israel was under Roman occupation at that time. 
the land that was given to them, promised to their father Abraham and given to them, the land had been overrun by Gentiles now for almost 500 years. <coughs> Roman soldiers could just stomp on Jewish rights anytime they wanted to. A Roman soldier could kill a Jew and not be asked to give uh, any account for that. And what's even more, to rub salt in the wound, taxation that some scholars estimated are running over 90% was used to finance the Roman military enterprise that in fact was violating their rights in this way. Imagine financing the abuse of yourself. That's what was happening. And there were a group of people called the zealots, not just the Pharisees as well as the Sadducees, the priestly class and the experts in the law, but people called the zealots. They espoused a philosophy of resistance and armed revolution, including murder, in order both to execute revenge, to express their anger, as well as seize their rights. Now, imagine such a people in such a situation being told, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If you want to get some impact of that, imagine what would happen today, today in Israel if Jesus said that. <laughs> Both to the Palestinians and to the Israelis. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So it is for us today. We're not in that kind of a situation. The situation is very different. But we are living in a culture that has been indoctrinated with this idea of the survival of the fittest. Alfred Tennyson was the first person to whom this quote was uh, attributed, nature is red in tooth and claw. It's now taken over by Richard Dawkins and other people like that. And when we look at who occupies the corner offices in our corporate enterprises, it's not the meek, <laughs> it's the pushy, the aggressive, the demanding, those who run roughshod over people and do end run around situations. They get the high places, right? That's the society in which we live in. And so when we are told, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, we have exactly that same kind of incredulous reaction. Yet it was none other than Jesus who said this. And none other than the Apostle Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writing in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, amongst other things, is meekness or gentleness. So we're going to have to take a look at it. We must ask ourselves, what exactly is this thing called gentleness or meekness? Because words change their meaning in the way we use them. So sometimes when we read a translation like gentle, you may have some idea of what gentle is, you know. It's, it's kind of this as opposed to rough. But there's a lot, lot more to the meaning of this word, gentle or meek. There were at least three different strands of meaning that illuminate how this what this character or this fruit looks like. It's like shining spotlights from three different angles. The first one comes from the way it was used of wild animals that had been domesticated to the point where they would accept orders from their human bosses. And therefore it became a beautiful symbol, not a weakness, but a power under control. And applied to human behavior, it was a refusal to exercise power aggressively in order to safeguard your rights. Early in the Bible, in the, in the book of Genesis, we hear the story of Abraham. When Abraham was called by God, he left his hometown of Ur, corresponding roughly to modern-day Bab, uh, Iraq, Babylonia, and came all the way to the land of Canaan. And his nephew Lot came with him. And... God prospered both of them so much in the land, their flocks become so large that the, the herdsmen began fighting with each other. And Abraham did not want to have this fight. 
But being the patriarch to whom the promises of God were made and being the senior statesman, the uncle as it were, he had absolute total right to exercise authority and say, okay, Lord, this belongs to me, you go there. But he didn't do that. Instead, he turned to his younger nephew, Lot, and said, Lot, you take first choice. You choose whichever part of the land you want to. Now, totally different sermon, totally different story. Lot ended up making a very short-sighted choice of living near Sodom. But God's response to Abraham, who held his rights so loosely, was, Abraham, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, look to the west. Everywhere that you see that land, I'm going to give it to you. In this case, he literally inherited the land by his meek response, a refusal to exercise and exercise his legitimate powers that came both primarily from his status before God and before another human being, and held it loosely. As one example of this first dimension of power under control, meekness in action. Now, the second way in which this word was used was in Greek ethics. In Greek ethics, was seen, virtue was seen as a balance between extremes. So, for example, the virtue of courage was seen as a balance between recklessness on the one hand and cowardice on the other hand. In the same way, the Greek word prowess, translated meekness or gentleness, which is the fruit you're looking at today, was a balance between two extremes, uncontrolled anger on the one hand, and get this, tot the total inability to be angry at all on the other hand. And it was, it, they went on to define, Aristotle went on to define it as the ability to be angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. In other words, it was a controlled expression of anger. The be angry and sin not. See how, by the way, last week's fruit of the spirit of self-control begins to overlap into this one. So they're not all clearly distinct, but have this kind of overlap with each other. Now, Abraham was a beautiful example of that first definition of refusing to use power to exercise or safeguard your own rights. Moses was the most beautiful example of this second dimension. That's why in Numbers it speaks of Moses as the meekest man or the gentlest man in all the earth. The Hebrew word translated meekness there is, used, is translated by the Greek word in the Greek version of the, uh, of the Old Testament. So it's exactly the same idea. So how did Moses demonstrate the second dimension? this ability to be angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time. Remember when he was up in the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the Israelites had already been led into the worship of the golden calf, which was their paradigmatic sin of idolatry that stayed with them right through until the time of the exile. For hundreds of years, it, it characterized that sin of idolatry. So when Moses came down from the mountain, you see, you look at a man, it looks like he's completely uncontrolled in his anger. He just smashes the idols with those two tablets of Ten Commandments. The commandments are broken and 3,000 people are executed. But it wasn't a man out of control. He was a man who had been in the presence of a holy God for 40 days. He saw the enormity of the sin of idolatry. So he was angry with the right people and he was angry for the right reason. Not because they violated his rights but because they sinned against the holy God. But you'll also read that the very next day he went all the way back up at the mountain to plead for God to have mercy upon these people. He said, blot out my name if you want but please have mercy upon them. So he was not only angry with the right people for the right reason, he was angry for the right amount of time as well. And then he went back and pleaded for their goodness. So that's the second strand. Now the third strand, uh, 
that illuminates this idea of gentleness and meekness is, is a little bit more indirect. The first two were pretty direct, the third was a bit more indirect. And Martin Lloyd-Jones in his beautiful commentary on the, on the Sermon on the Mount was the first one to help me understand it. He said, let's look at the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, or the gentle, in the light of the first two. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. That's humility before God. That's the person who says, I have nothing to be proud of. The second beatitude is blessed are the day that mourn. That's the dimension of our life before God that says, not only do I have nothing to be proud of, I have a lot that isn't right in my life that I need to mourn and confess. So now Martin Lloyd-Jones says, imagine that you've spent time, you've just spent some time before God acknowledging exactly these two things. Lord, I, I am, I, I, I don't have anything to be proud of. I'm, I'm, I'm humble, I'm totally dependent upon you, I have nothing in my hands myself, I can't do it. All, all of those dimensions of humility. You've just taken some time to acknowledge that before God. You've also mourned your own sinfulness. You've also mourned the things in your own life that, are, that have fallen short. Now he says, imagine getting up from this time alone with God where you have acknowledged that you have nothing to be proud of and a lot to not be proud of and you have an interaction with a brother or a sister who immediately confirms those two things about you. And says, yeah, you're right. You do have nothing to be proud of. And you do have a lot that's going on. And what do you feel like doing to that person, Jones says? You feel like punching them in the face. That's where the third beatitude comes in. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the third definition is, a, and Jones goes on to say, it is a right opinion of ourselves before God that expresses itself in our relationship. So a correct opinion of ourselves before God, but allowed to extend itself in this direction. And Dawson Trotman was the founder, I think, of Wycliffe, if I'm not mistaken. He put it this way, learn to look for the kernel of truth in every criticism that comes your way. What normally looks like a violation of your dignity rights, what if you were to learn to look for the kernel of truth in every criticism? Again, Moses was a beautiful example of this. He was angry with the right people for the right reason for the right amount of time. But if you go on reading the story of Moses, you will find that the Israelites were murmuring and grumbling and criticizing his leadership all the time. And in spite of the fact that he was the towering giant of a prophet, probably Israel's greatest prophet, and he did get angry, but he never expressed that anger to the people. He was face down before God and he expressed his anger before God. So he was angry. But before the people, you know what he said? Okay, you think you need to be leaders? I'm not. Why don't you bring a sense uh, offering before God? I'll bring an offering before God. Let God take care of it. He was letting God vindicate him. So you fuse these three things together and you get this idea of what meekness or this gentleness really is like. It is power under control especially controlling the emotion of anger and especially when your rights are violated and you're criticized. Put that all together, that's the fruit of the spirit called gentleness that we're looking at. Now, so now that we understand what that is, what it would have meant to the original hearers, let's tease it out a little bit more to keep giving it that specific shape and contours. Otherwise, we can get comfortable with ideas, but we don't form the bridges to what it's like in our own lives today. So we want to go back to Jesus again. And he continues in that Sermon on the Mount, the same chapter where he earlier introduced, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In verses 39 to 42, we hear him say this. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, in building a bridge from this thing that was written over 2,000 years ago to you and me, it's useful to ask ourselves what kind of rights violations are involved in these four examples that Jesus gave. First and foremost, he says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, listen, what, what is that? This has nothing to do with bullying, okay? This is not Jesus teaching us how to handle bullying. It's a totally different subject. I'm not an expert on that. If that's an issue in your lives of your children, you need to go to people who can help you with that. This has nothing to do with that. Notice it's a slap on the right cheek, which means you slap them this way, but that would land on their left cheek. How do you slap somebody on their right cheek? Uh, excluding the few left-handed people. I'm talking about how you... How do you norm, the only way you slap a person on, the, on their left, right cheek is a backhanded slap. And a backhanded slap in that culture was an expression of contempt, of demeaning, of lowering the person. Turning the other cheek was like saying, treat me like an equal. So this is a violation of dignity rights. Jesus was slapped before the high priest. Paul was slapped. That wasn't slapping in the normal sense of the word. It wasn't bullying that was going on. It was insult. It was degradation of the people. And so, that is a violation of our dignity rights. The second one, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, most people had only two garments. They had the undergarment, which is the tunic, and then the outer garment, which is the cloak. And while the law allowed people to sue somebody for their undergarment, nobody was allowed to sue anyone for their outer cloak. That was the only protection that they had. And so here is an issue of a violation of legal rights. Someone is using the power of the law to try and take your tunic away from you. So this is a violation of your legal rights. Then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, what is this forcing you to go one mile? Any Roman soldier was allowed by Roman law to ask, stop any Jew on the way and make him carry his load, which often would be military equipment on their way to some kind of a battle. Uh, once again, remember, these were the people that were taxed 90% almost, and all that tax money was going to establish and support this entire military affair, and now Jesus was saying to, to that person, this, this might happen to you. That's a violation of your personal rights just because someone has power over you. And then fourthly, he says, if any, if, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Our normal reaction to anyone like that would be to say, look, this is the 15th time you're asking me for this stuff. Why don't you go get your own? Or I had to work hard to buy this for myself. Shouldn't you be working hard, saving up some money and getting it rather than just borrowing it from me? This is a violation of our property rights. See, exactly the same four rights that we kind of talked about are part of our everyday life. Dignity rights, a slap on the left, right cheek. Legal rights, the suing of our tunic. The invasion of our personal rights by making us carry this burden just because they have power over us. Sort of like a boss or someone in authority over you who while you're doing your legitimate work also gets personal requests taken care of just because they have that power over you. And then, of course, property rights. Shows how unbelievably relevant the Bible that was written 2,000 years ago, the New Testament, is for your life and for my life today. 
Now, Jesus suggested response in every case, and I'll reread the passage. This time, the yellow highlights will be on the responses, not on the offenses. In every case is what meekness looks like in practice. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not retaliate. When you get, have a put down, when your dignity rights are violated in some way, accept it. Don't retaliate in kind. And if anyone sue you, take your tunic and let him have your cloak as well. The idea there is they can't sue you for this cloak. They're suing you for the tunic. Give them more than what they're asking for. And already we are beginning to squirm, right? If we are honest. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's Jesus saying, you know this Roman soldier that 90% of your money goes to finance? While you're walking under that one first load for that first mile, don't grumble. Shock him completely at the end of that one mile by saying, can I carry it another mile for you? Now, you can just see their blood begin to boil as they were thinking of this. Are you kidding, Jesus? If we're, not, if we're honest, that's exactly what we're thinking. It means, again, it's the same principle. Give them more than, they have, than you have to. And then give to the one who borrows from you and do not refuse them. This is what meekness looks like when our rights are violated. Turning the other cheek. Giving them more than they deserve and not refusing those who would borrow from. Now, you can see very quickly the objections forming in our mind. Well, just a minute, Sundar. What about these people's legitimate need to be confronted? It's not right for them to violate these dignity rights and personal rights and property rights and legal rights. Don't they need confrontation? And wouldn't I just be enabling this kind of unhealthy behavior on their part if I respond like this? Now, those are all legitimate questions. But what we miss in that is that we rush to that very quickly. And by getting to that, what might be appropriate and necessary confrontations and corrections and not enabling people any further, while all those things in many cases might be necessary, the problem that we have is we get to them so quickly, so fast, that we miss what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us by responding the way Jesus wants us to respond. And by the way, also what the Holy Spirit can do in other people's lives, which is really what the gospel and the Christian life is all about. Let me give you some illustration because this is the hardest part. When we first moved to our church, uh, we, our biggest was, loss was not really even losing our home. We moved to a parcel, but it was the excellent school that the kids were in. And they moved to another school in an older area. And near the end of one school year, I think Sheila must have been eight at that time, I think. So there was this boy who sat behind her in school, and he was a bit of a bully. And he would irritate her and tease her, and every now and then he would just kick her from behind. Not hard enough to hurt or leave a mark in any way, but it was very frustrating. But it happened near the end of the term, and so Sham and I decided to not immediately launch a complaint with the school or anything like that, which would be our normal reaction. But we decided to take the whole summer to pray. And so every night when Sheila went to bed, I would pray with her, and we would pray for this boy, Glenn. We would ask that Jesus would turn his attitudes around. Even we weren't prepared for the response. Because from the first day of school, she came back, she said, Dad, you won't believe what happened. He's now the guy that protects me in the school from everybody else. 
what an opportunity yeah we could have immediately gone to the principal we could immediately have confronted the situation and there may be some cases where that is absolutely necessary remember i told you this is not a, a course on how to handle bullying in schools this is an illustration of what we might miss by going there too fast and by the way to show you that nothing has happened she's changed in 40 years since that time last month i was talking to a friend of mine who lives in another city and his granddaughter was going through exactly the same kind of thing uh, she was an, an excellent athlete and she was regularly doing much better than a boy in her class and so he didn't like that i guess because his ego might have been a friend so he began bullying her so i told my friend the story i said why don't you start praying like this i'm not lying a month later i said sundar this kid now actually shows up at my granddaughter's races and cheers for her to win my point in this is simply this by rushing too quickly to what we want to do and what might be necessary eventually we miss out on what the holy spirit wants to do in us and through us that's what jesus is after let me give you a little so that was a violation of dignity rights let me give you a similar example of a violation of uh, property rights again when we first started worshiping at rexel this was before we became, became a pastor we were part of a, a home group they weren't even home groups weren't much in fashion in those days you know whether you call them community groups or home groups or life groups but we four couples got together including our we were one of the four couples and one of the gals told the story we were actually studying martin lloyd jones's commentary and the sermon on the mount or using that commentary different ones of us were leading and so one of our friends in the group told us a story she said i have this neighbor She said this neighbor found out that I do my vacuuming every Monday night. So every Tuesday this lady would borrow the vacuum cleaner and keep it till the following Monday and then give it back to her on Monday afternoon. And she said what should I do? Well we discussed this as a group and he said okay Julie in the light of what Jesus seems to say to us you should just give her the vacuum cleaner. She wants to borrow it Jesus said don't say no. Oh it took a while to get there but she said okay and we continued saying So long as you're angry about this you need to keep giving it to her. When you get to the point where you are no longer angry when you've actually surrendered your right to own that vacuum cleaner even though it's yours for 6 days a week then you might be ready to actually confront it. So we all agreed that this was a good biblical way of responding to what Jesus or at least Jesus way of responding to the situation and we did. Do you know how long it took her to get to that point? 9 months. for 9 months every week she let the neighbor have the vacuum cleaner until one day she reached the point she told our group she said i'm ready i'm there now i'm not angry i'm not upset anymore and so the next time the neighbor walked in she said you know you know what i could actually give this vacuum cleaner to you but i'm not going to today and the reason i'm not going to go to today it's not good for you it's not good for you to be that kind of a person the next day the lady went and bought her own vacuum cleaner So there was confrontation it took 9 months to get her to the and that's what she would have missed did this lady need confrontation yes was she was she being enabled yes but to go there too soon by the way would not only have missed this beautiful work of grace in this woman's life in our small group usually when we get to the correction point too quickly we don't do it properly and it's therefore never received and the intended result doesn't happen So if you really want that other person to change which is what love is all about wait until God does his work in you so he can do his work through you. Are you getting a picture of how this works? This is the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. 
So yes, there's a time and a place for confrontation, for correction, maybe. But make sure that you respond the way of Jesus to give the Spirit enough time to do that work of freedom in you and then out. So once we get a handle on this, how do we pull it off? How do we actually, okay, we understand what meekness is, we understand the, the kinds of rights violation that trigger the need for that fruit, we understand how it works in our lives, but that's not enough, the power, that's not enough to do that. We, okay, I get it, but I don't want to do that. I want to naturally lash out. I want to naturally correct. I want to remove this frustration as quickly as I can. That's a natural response. And, and the answer is the same in every situation. It's to come to Jesus. I mentioned that to you last week. I mean, I can't remember that message whether I shared these verses with you. But in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, <coughs> we read these things. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, says that word, meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, all kinds of interpretations have been offered for what the yoke really is. But the most likely in context, taking a yoke upon yourself when applied to human relationships usually was language to describe a disciple accepting somebody's influence in their life as a rabbi. So when Jesus was saying, take my yoke upon you, he was saying, come to me, let me be your rabbi. Learn from me. And you learned not primarily through instruction, although that was involved. You learned by being with your rabbi, watching the rabbi, dialoguing with the rabbi, disputing with the rabbi, and slowly growing and imitating him. Dialogue, disputation, and imitation were the means by which rabbi, disciples were made in school. And that's exactly how Jesus discipled the people. If you've been watching any of the, the chosen series at all, you know exactly how this thing works out in practice. Come, take, learn are verbs that dis describe the choice to apprentice under Rabbi Jesus. And I love what he said. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in art. He doesn't say learn from me because I have a PhD in gentleness. It's not knowledge-based. He says, I am gentle. Jesus teaches us who Jesus is. We impart who we are. That's the most effective. By the way, it's the only way we can really teach effectively, especially when it comes to these things. You teach who you are, and you teach who you are becoming, and teach you what you long to become. Jesus said, I am meek. I am gentle. Jesus fully exemplified Matthew 5, 28 to 32. Was there a violation of dignity rights? You better believe it. No one's dignity was violated the way Jesus was. Slapped on the cheek, blindfolded, and his prophetic office was mocked. Come on, tell us who slapped you. They were mocking his prophetic office. They wanted this discount. It wasn't just the children bullying one. It wasn't that kind of game that they were playing. They were saying, you claim to be a prophet? Well, show us who you are. Teach us, tell us who slapped you. That was their way of saying, you're not a prophet. You're a blasphemer. And then, of course, on the cross, stripped of the robe that most paintings supply him with as well. 
was the ultimate physical declaration abuse. So he knew what dignity rights was, but he kept his mouth shut. He never responded. Well, then talk about uh, personal rights, invasion of space. He, you remember, he, he, one time he went alone with his disciple to be alone, but the people saw him and ran to him. They couldn't leave him alone. His, parents, his mother was upset, you don't even have time to eat. But he had compassion on the crowds. There was a constant violation of his personal space. Property rights. He, he said, son of man has nothing. He, the only thing he owned was his robe. He said, I don't have a place to put my head down at night. And they gambled away for that one piece of rope, uh, uh, robe at the foot of the cross as well. And then as far as legal rights were concerned, one scholar documented 42 different violations of his rights uh, in, the, in his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. All his legal rights were violated. His dignity rights were violated. His legal rights were violated. His personal rights were violated. And there was no property to violate anyway, except his one robe that he had. And yet throughout it all, he said nothing. So when his own rights were violated, he said nothing. But by the way, he also knew what it was to be angry with the right people for the right reason for the right amount of time. Remember when he went into the temple and he saw all the money changes in the outer courts. He says, didn't you know, he was quoting Isaiah, this, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for the nations and you have made it into a den of thieves. And he was like a, looked like a man out of control, made a bunch of whips, overturned the money tables, drove the people out, cleansed that outer court of the Gentiles. He was angry with the right people for the right reason. He was burning with indignation for the zeal for his father's house. And yet when his own rights were violated, he said nothing. He only asks us to do what he did himself. And this is the most important thing, my brothers and sisters. He didn't do this all as Jesus, the Son of God. He did it as Jesus, the incarnate human being. Jesus learned humility and meekness as a human being like you and me. The incarnation wasn't just some amazing miracle that we celebrate once a year at Christmas. The incarnation was a beginning of a whole new stream of humanity. What the first Adam was supposed to do and didn't do, Jesus did. And it is as man, as a human being, he asks you and me. That's why it becomes possible for every single one of us with the Holy Spirit within us to live exactly the way Jesus lived. The incarnation is a miracle that is supposed to be taking place all the time in your life and my life. As the Spirit, we sang earlier on about the Spirit to come and revive us. That's nothing less than asking the Spirit to incarnate Jesus within us again so that Christ may be formed within us. That's what it means to come and le learn from me. That's the only way we're going to do it. So, what does this look like in practice? First of all, remember, Psalm 4, be angry. Come to Jesus and be angry in his presence. It's okay to be angry. It's the safest place to be angry. You know how the secret to Moses' meekness? Being angry with the right person for the right reason for the right amount of time and handling criticism the way he did without retaliation? Over and over again you will read, he fell face down before God. He fell face down before God and he was angry. There is a place where we need to give vent to our anger appropriately. But we need training where we get it so wrong when it comes to anger that we need training. And that's why as you're reading the Psalms, if you ever read all the Psalms, you'll find some 
pretty frightful psalms. You'll find some psalms that are vitriolic, full of anger, desiring revenge, including smash their babies to pieces, which is too awful to mention because it happened very recently in the same country. Why all of that? Here's what I learned from Eugene Peterson. Anger and all the other ugly emotions, if we don't pray them, we will become like that anger ourselves. That's the deadly power of these emotions. Injustice invokes anger within us, but if you don't know how to pray that anger to God, we become angry with exactly the kind of anger that we hate. You see, because we become like the object of our emotional focus. So if our emotional focus is the one who has violated our rights, we actually become like that person or in danger of becoming like that person. We become like the object of our emotional focus. So let the object of our emotional focus be Jesus instead so we can become like him. So let your anger, that's why we need these, the, the language of the Psalms to help express those negative emotions. Then confess your sinful expressions of anger because we get it wrong so often. Well, come to Jesus, acknowledge it. Acknowledge that inappropriate response to the violation of your rights. And ask for forgiveness, which is what he's promised to give. And then thirdly, ask him to satisfy violated rights. Our little experiment praying for our daughter, or my friend who repeated that, those are just attempts to let Jesus fulfill our rights. That's what Psalm 37 says, don't fret. By the way, it's Psalm 37 from which the meek shall inherit the earth comes into the vocabulary. It wasn't original with Jesus. And Psalm 37 is all about not fretting. Commit your way to the Lord. Let him vindicate the rightness of your cause. Learning to let Jesus be the vindicator in the first and foremost is, is huge. And then lastly, grace to respond like Jesus the next time. So you confess Say, the next time it happens, Lord, I need your grace. Right at that moment, I need the Spirit to conceive the power of Christ within me so I can respond in these ways. Very quickly, as I wrap this message to a close, why, do, why bother? You might say, look, isn't it just so much easy? Just let them have a peace of mind. Why and then it'll all go away, you know? You were angry, you were upset, you didn't react properly to your wife, you went over, everything turned out okay. So why can't we just be like that? Why bother? It's important because until we know the why, we will not be able to endure the how. Viktor Frankl, who survived the Jewish concentration camps, or the uh, German concentration camps, and who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, said this, once we know the why, we can endure anyhow. Once we know the why, we can endure anyhow. There's a negative answer to the why and a positive. The negative answer is in that same verse in Ephesians 4, where Paul quotes Psalm 4 and says, be angry and don't sin. He said, don't let the sun go down your wrath and give a foothold to the devil. When we give inappropriate anger, anger not dealt with the way Jesus wants us to deal with it, gives a foothold to the devil. It gives him, a, a, if you will, a base camp from which to survey and wreak more damage. And his way to damage so is to divide relationships. We sang about that earlier on as well because we are no longer divided because the Holy Spirit comes within us. The enemy's work is to divide. And anger, inappropriate anger, or not dealt with, gives a foothold to the devil. And it allows him to, as it was, survey our families, survey our churches, and go about the business of dividing us. 
That's the negative, the huge negative answer to the question, why bother, why learn these disciplines to come to Jesus in this way, is so that we don't give the devil a foothold. The positive one is like in everything else, every commandment that God has given to us is ultimately for our freedom. He says, if you know the Son, he will set you free. Let me close with a brief illustration of how each of these rights, rights violation properly responded to gives us freedom. Tom Skinner was a well-known black evangelist in the 70s. He was converted in Chicago right out of the gangs by a radio show. He tells about a story that happened shortly after his conversion. He was playing in a football game, and he once tackled an, a, a defensive lineman who happened to be white. And as they were moving away to the huddle, this, this, this lineman came to Skinner, punched him in the stomach, and he was bent over, hacked him on the neck, kicked him when he was on the ground, and walked away. Skinner said, if that had happened two weeks before, I would have killed the guy. And I would have been able to do it. He was strong enough. What he did, because he'd been a Christian and Jesus empowered him, he walked over to the guy and said, you know, two weeks ago I would have killed you. But because I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to let you know I forgive you. That guy came to him at the end of the game and said, your response has done more to knock racial prejudice out from me than anything else you could have done. Now, when was Tom Skinner more free? When he was free enough two weeks before that to punch the other guy and get him back? Or when he was free enough to be able to say to him, I don't need to do that, I love you. When was he really free? What was God really after? When his dignity rights were violated. And as for our friend in the Bible study, the vacuum cleaner, when was she really free? Nine months earlier when she could have told this woman, forget it, I'm not, you go buy your own vacuum cleaner or nine months later, when was she really free? And in my case, I could have sat there waiting, but the 10 minutes became 40 minutes, waiting for my wife to come back, fuming all that time. Would that have made me free? I was first free to fume, free to give her a piece of my mind when she came back 40 minutes later, instead of 10 minutes later. Or, if like Jesus had been focusing on the second mile, what else can I do after she comes back? Much, much freer the second thing than the first. So Jesus' agenda in all of these things is our freedom. So negatively, why bother? Don't give a foothold to the enemy. Positively, why bother? Nothing less than your freedom and my freedom is in stake. So in a few moments, we're going to be going into our communion service. That's another way of coming to Jesus. It's another way of learning from him. This time not through instruction, but actually through, metaphorically speaking, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Which, by the way, aren't just bare remembrance. Luther and Zwingli argued over the meaning of this, but Calvin probably got it right when he said this is not about transubstantiation and consubstantiation or a bare remembrance. It is real presence. Christ being imparted to us a very special. We're going to, go, we're going to be doing that. But as we do in preparation for that, I've got some points to ponder, then we'll have a moment of silence, okay? First of all, power under control is the first definition. With whom and in what situations do you need to be less assertive, aggressive, and demanding, and instead hold your rights loosely, trusting in God to protect and guard your rights as he sees fit? And it's most helpful if you think of one person or one situation. With whom and in what situations do you need to be less assertive, aggressive, and demanding, and instead hold your rights loosely, 
trusting in God to protect and guard your rights as he sees fit. When we look at the second definition of meekness, controlled expression of anger, here are a couple of questions. Is your anger with the right people flowing out of a zeal for God's honor? And is it for the right amount of time? In what situations and with whom do you need to move beyond righteous anger to plead for God's grace for them? And finally, self-control when criticized. What is your most common response to criticism? How might that change if you really believed God would defend you? What is the kernel of truth in any recent criticism you might have received? Just take a minute and reflect on whatever it is the Holy Spirit might have brought to your mind as you were listening to those questions. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.